you would this morning turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Begin our reading in verse 1. Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, Ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my desire and all my, excuse me, all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. I have a great interest in the last words of dying men. We see several great statements in the Bible of men who are dying and, of course, of the greatest of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find while he was hanging upon Calvary's cross, there were seven sayings that he uttered. One of the ones that is most amazing to me, while he's hanging there by the desires of wicked men, he asked the Father to forgive them for they know not what they do. He also asked for a cup because he thirsts. And then finally we know he said it is finished and he gave up the ghost. Those are the best last words that are spoken in all the Bible and all the world that it is finished. We find that other men spoke great things right before their departure. We find that Jacob, while he was dying, the Bible says, by faith blessed his twelve sons... And through that blessing, he showed which lineage the Lord Jesus Christ would come through. And that was through the tribe of Judah. But he also spoke prophetically about all the 12 tribes. And of course, those things by and by came to pass. We see other men throughout history who have spoken great things right before they passed away. I call to mind a man by the name of John Warburton, who was an English strict Baptist minister, that right before he passed away, instead of looking at darkness, he cried aloud, hallelujah, and then he breathed his last breath. We find there was a minister in the state of Texas named Elder S.A. Payne. There's a song in our books that were written regarding the last words of that man. He didn't even live to be the age of 40. He was a bright star among our people, and some said the Lord took him early because he was such a great blessing. People were beginning to worship him more than they worshiped the Lord which he preached. And some suspected maybe the Lord took him out of the way. But right as he was dying, he said, oh, how sweet to die. And that uh, song has been penned from the words which he spoke. Here in 2 Samuel, it says these are the last words of David. Now, we'll find that David does continue on for some time after this expression and after these words, and he does speak other things. But here when it says these are the last words of David, these are things that he spoke that were very important concerning his life. These were things that he wanted to lay out for the kingdom as people went on after him. Now, we'll find that in the very next chapter, David continues in sin when he numbered the people in a way that was contrary to the law. And we'll find that later in 1 Kings chapter 1 that David does speak for the coronation of his son Solomon to sit upon the throne and then later the temple to be built under his reign. But here it says these be the last words of David and this is telling us it's David the son of Jesse who we know is the king that was raised up on high by the anointing of the God of Jacob. It says this was also David who was the sweet psalmist of Israel. We find in 1 Samuel 13 he's called the man after God's own heart. This was a man that loved the Lord, a man that served the Lord, but we find he was a man that was also a man. 
a man that messed up, a man that made mistakes, a man that fell short, a man that angered the Lord, a man that uh, understood the judgment of God. He was a man just like you and I are. There was really no difference uh, with him than us. Just as the Bible says of Elijah, he was a man of like passions. However, he prayed and it rained not. And then he prayed again three and a half years later and it rained. He was simply a man. David, likewise, was just a man. However, he was a man after God's heart. And the Bible calls him the sweet psalmist of Israel. We read the book of Psalms and many of those are attributed to the pen of David. And many of them bring us great comfort in times of our affliction and times of trouble. Many times we turn to those wonderful words of the various psalms according to the emotions that we're experiencing right now. Many times we find great joy and great comfort through the words of this great man. Why? Because he was the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man that God blessed, a man that had a heart after God, a man that loved the Lord and loved the Lord's kingdom. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, the spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. And that's why he's able to say the next few things. It says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. The Bible is clear, when wicked men bear rule, the righteous mourn. Uh, We've experienced that in our own nation. When wicked men have been upon the throne, or at least in the White House and in the Capitol building of Washington, D.C., and in the Supreme Court building, and also in other places of government throughout our land, when wicked men bear rule, the righteous mourn. Because laws are enacted that go against the things which we hold dear, and they begin to oppress those who would do right. Uh, we find the Bible, on the other hand, says, when the righteous bear rule, the people rejoice. What great time it is when there's a man upon the throne who loves the Lord and loves the Lord's word, wherein we can have peace and joy and a prosperity that comes from the Lord. Here, God tells us through the mouth of David that he that ruleth over men must be just. For him to expect the blessings of God upon his reign, he must be a just man. He must rule in the fear of God. However, we know that doesn't always happen. Just because it says here he must be just doesn't mean he will be just. But if he expects to find favor with the Lord and the Lord's hand upon him as he rules in a nation, he must stand in fear of God and must be a just man. That uh, is in all aspects of government. If a father wants a peaceful home and he wants children and a spouse that respect him, he must rule as in, in a just way and he must rule in the fear of God. He must not be a tyrant in his home and expect that his family is going to rejoice and be happy to live under his rule. The same is true uh, for a church. To experience the blessings and happiness that comes from the Lord, they must have a pastor who is a just man who rules in the fear of God. Uh, The same is true for a community. We want people in our mayor's office and in the council seats uh, who are just men that rule in the fear of God. All the way through the state governments, all the way to our federal government. And notice what the Bible says will happen when you have a just man that rules in the fear of God. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises at the dawn of a new day. When the sun rises, even a morning without clouds. As the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. It paints a picture of a prosperous time. When I rise up and see dark clouds, I expect one of two things. Maybe the clouds will pass over without a storm or I expect a storm is on the way. When you are under the rule of a man who does not fear God and who is not just, there's clouds over his reign throughout. And you expect at any time a storm shall break out. Whether that be in a home when a father's not ruling in the way that God has determined, children and a wife will wake up every morning with a cloud over them wondering what's going to happen today in this home. 
When a man who pastors a church does not rule in the fear of God and is a just man every week as a church assembles together, the question is not going to be, how will the Lord bless us this day? But there's going to be wonderings about what are the clouds going to bring here this day? When a government is full of wicked people, we wonder daily what clouds of judgment and affliction are going to pass over us this day. Here he says that this man who rules in the fear of God and is a just man, he's as the light of the morning when there's no clouds, as the tender grass spring out of the earth by clear shining after rain. I love the time after a, a good gentle rain. And that's what he's bringing to picture here. That's what a godly man is when he rules in the fear of God. But notice how David continues. Although my house be not so with God. I love how he continues it. Yet he had made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering all things ensure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. These words of David remind me of the words of Jacob when he was brought before Pharaoh. If you remember when Joseph brought Jacob and all of his family down, and ultimately they'll live in the land of Goshen, Jacob is brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh wants to know how old Jacob is. The Egyptians had a fascination with old age because they wanted to escape death. And so here's an old man coming before Pharaoh and Pharaoh wants to know the secret for his long life. And instead of telling him what the secret of his long life is, he does just the opposite. says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my pilgrimage. And he goes on to say that I had not attained to the days of the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham lived to be 175. And we find that Isaac lived to be 180. But at this time, we find that Jacob's only 130. He's 50 years short of what his father lived to. And he knew that his days were short upon the earth. So here Pharaoh wants to know the secret of a long life and we find that Jacob says, well, I'll tell you the secret of a short life and the secret of a short life are evil days, not doing and living in the sight of God as we ought to live. The Bible tells us in the book of Exodus with the Ten Commandments, the first commandment with promise was to honor our father and mother that our late days would be long upon the earth. However, we find that Jacob certainly did not honor his father and mother. Instead, he tricked his father, deceived his father, and stole a birthright from his brother. And so he found that his days were shortened upon this earth because he did not follow that command to honor his father and his mother. Here David speaks similarly. He says, although my house be not so with God. And as we began this morning to look at the life of King David and see how far short he fell, we see the coupling, though, of the promise that he goes on to speak of in spite of David's wickedness and in spite of the fact that he fell short. Thankfully, God had, before David came along, made a covenant that existed before this world even began. And David could say, even though my house is not so with the Lord, I am thankful to know that God is so with me. You know, God has still done right and God has still been gracious and merciful in spite of the fact that I have fallen short in my ways before the Lord. We can go back into the book of 1 Samuel and begin to see the life of David. We find that he was a faithful young boy who tended his father's sheep. And we'll find the occasion comes that a lion comes and a bear comes. And we know what David does. He goes after the bear and he goes after the lion to retrieve his father's sheep because he was a steward of his father's flock. And he wanted to do that which was right. And he even went out without thinking about personal danger or if he thought about it, he didn't let that stand in the way. He went after a lion and after a bear and took the sheep from them and brought them back. Now, if you've ever seen a wild animal that has his prey, he's not one to willingly and freely give it up. 
And uh, in fact, they can pass on to you pretty quickly. But David didn't think about that. He recognized that he was placed in charge of that which belonged to his father. And he wanted to be faithful regarding that. And so he brought it home safely. We find at this time, of course, Saul is the king over the land. Uh, Saul, though, was of the tribe of Benjamin and by law had no right to the throne. However, the children of Israel desired a king and demanded of Samuel a king. And so they received Saul, who was head and shoulders above the rest, a very fair man to look upon. He seemed strong. He seemed like a king. And instead of looking at the heart of Saul, they looked at the stature of Saul and they chose Saul to be their king. However, before they do so, if you'll remember, Samuel reminds them what's going to happen when they select a king. Up to that point, they've had faithful judges reigning over them and Samuel too. However, you'll find that Samuel's sons were not honorable. And so the people wanted out from under Samuel's sons. So they said, let us have a king like the other nations. Now, I believe God fully intended to give them a king. And I believe David would have been the very first king uh, that they would have had if they had waited patiently on the Lord. See, if you remember, Jacob told his sons that the scepter should not depart from Judah, neither a lawgiver from between his feet till Shiloh come. That means the king would come from Judah. However, Judah committed a sin and that sin brought a curse for 10 generations. So there'd be no king out of Judah for 10 generations. And David was when that uh, uh, curse was lifted. So if the people had simply waited on the Lord, they'd have had David for their first king. They would have bypassed Saul and the trouble that came with Saul. Sometimes the people of God want things that aren't right. Sometimes we want things that are right at the wrong time. And so we ought to patiently wait on the Lord. You know, the children of Israel, when they were in their wilderness journey, they had two guiding principles. They had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they weren't to move until the Lord moved. But when the Lord moved, they were to pack up and get ready to go. We ought to do the same. We ought to be knowing what's right, but also when to do it at the right time. Here the children of Israel, they wanted their king, so they're getting Saul. And Samuel tells him, well, this was what's going to happen. Saul's going to take your sons. He's going to pull them into the uh, royal army. He's also going to take your daughters. They're going to be in his harem. He's also going to tax you, and you're going to pay for all his conquerings, and you're also going to pay for his palaces and the royal city. But if that's what you want, go ahead. That's what you're going to get. And of course, God tells Samuel, they've not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. So I'm going to appoint them Saul for their king. And that's what they receive. And for a time, Saul was a good king. And for a time, Israel prospered under his reign. However, there comes a day when God tells Saul that because Amalek had done wickedly to the children of Israel during their wilderness journey, would not let them come through their way. God had cursed them forever. And so God tells uh, Saul he's to go against Amalek of the Amalekites and he's to kill every one of them, man, woman, and children, and also all their beasts. However, we find that Saul, he keeps the king and he also keeps all the choice beasts and he brings them back to the camp. Well, about this time, here comes Samuel. And when Samuel comes, he asks Saul about all this. And Saul tells him that he's done everything that the Lord commanded him to do. That's not true. Uh, He did not do all the Lord commanded him to do because the Lord told him he was to kill everything of the Amalekites. Not one thing was to be left alive, man, woman, child, or beast. However, he kept 
uh, the choice. And of course, Samuel asked, well, what means the bleeding of the sheep then? Why do I hear this noise? He says, well, we did keep the choice ones to offer to the Lord, which was another lie. He lied, number one, saying, I did this and did everything the Lord commanded. No, he didn't. And then he tells the next lie, well, we kept this to sacrifice to the Lord. He never thought about sacrificing to the Lord until he was caught by Samuel. Then all of a sudden, he's trying to cover his tracks and say, well, you know, we kept all this so that we can honor the Lord because he gave us the victory. He's a liar. And the Lord departs from him. And from that time forward, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the very next chapter, God sends Samuel down to Bethlehem and down to the house of Jesse to choose one of Jesse's sons to be the king. If you remember, Jesse had several sons, eight altogether. And as they all come in, the very first, Samuel thinks he's the king. Because just like the Israelites, Samuel, who was prone to nature too, sees that he's a goodly person and he's tall. He just seems to be like a king. But God reminds Samuel that God does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. And remember, David is a man after God's own heart. So God was looking at David. And finally, after the first uh, several sons of uh, Jesse are brought about, uh, we find that uh, Samuel has to ask, are there any more? You know, have I maybe come to the wrong house? And, of course, Jesse tells him there's one more, a young lad. He's out tending to the sheep. He says, call him. And so David is called forth. And God tells Samuel that that's the one and he's to be anointed. So David is anointed king quite some time before he actually becomes king. God anoints him king, but Saul is still upon the throne. And we'll find that David had great respect for the anointed of God. And we likewise ought to have great respect to the anointed of God. When God anoints a person, his presence upon them, we ought to understand that and honor that and respect that. And David did. Even though Saul was not respectable and he didn't live like he should have and didn't reign like he should have, we find on two occasions David could have taken Saul's life one time in a cave and nobody would have known it, but God knew it. And David stood before the Lord and he recognized that was still God's anointing. And twice he spared Saul's life, even though by this time Saul has tried to kill him multiple times. But David has been selected. David has been anointed. But David patiently waits on the Lord. The Bible tells us clearly if we'd be patient, we find the Bible is clear that patience, let patience have a perfect work. If we just step back and let the Lord work and we just be patient way the Lord, things would turn out so much better. The children of Israel would have turned out so much better. They just patiently waited for David to be king instead of selecting Saul. Uh, They'd have been so much better if they'd have patiently waited on the Lord out in the wilderness instead of constantly murmuring and complaining. We'd be so much better off if we'd just be patient and let the Lord do his work. Let patience have its perfect work that we might be entire, perfect, wanting nothing. Here, though, we find David honors that principle. He lives like he's supposed to. He recognized God's anointed him, but the time's not right for him to ascend to the throne. So he patiently waits for the Lord to take Saul out of the way. And when the Lord takes Saul out of the way, then he would be promoted to the throne. We'll find a lot of things, of course, transpire. We'll find, of course, the day comes when the Philistines come against the children of Israel and they mock them, especially one named Goliath. Uh, For 40 days, there's a standoff out in the battlefield because here Goliath wants to fight one of the children of Israel and nobody's brave enough to come forth. Not even King Saul, who stands head and shoulders above the rest. 
But however, there comes a day after about 40 days of this standoff that Jesse sends David out there to see how the battle's going and to bring provisions to his older brothers who are in the battle. And David comes out there to the battle site and what's he see? He sees a standoff and he's wondering why in the world are not the armies of the Lord out fighting the battle for the Lord? And he asks the question, is there not a cause? In other words, is Israel and the armies of our God and the land of our God not worth fighting for? Is it not worth taking a chance and taking a risk and just believing that the Lord will be with you in your battle? That He'll go before you? And as uh, one of the preachers preached in our fellowship, He'll also be our rearward. God will be all around us and camp about us, protect all around us. However, the Israelites failed to believe in that principle right then. David comes out. He's a young lad. He sees what's going on. And he's ashamed of what's happening here. Is there not a cause? Is there not a purpose to stand up? Uh, Too many times the people of God have not stood up when there was a good cause to stand for. We ought to stand up for what is right and not be afraid to stand up for what's right and keep standing uh, for what's right. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're to arm ourselves with all the armor of God and having done all to stand. There's times we simply all we need to do is just stand fast in what is right. Well, David, he goes out there and he sees the army of Israel. They're standing, but they're standing back instead of standing forward and doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And so, of course, he's ready to go out to battle. He says he'll do it. He volunteers. And, of course, they give him Saul's armament. He puts it on. It's too big. Why? God's not promoted to that spot yet. He's not the king yet. He's not to wear the king's armor yet. There's a day coming. He'll wear the king's armor. But that was not the day. He's still a servant of the king and a servant of the most high God. So it's not his time to wear the king's armor. And he hadn't proved it. He hadn't tested. He didn't know all about it yet. You know, there's times the Lord may have it in mind to advance us and promote us in a way that we'd like to go. And too many times we rush into it instead of standing back and waiting for the Lord to develop us for the position that he's to lift us up into. David had the patience to wait. He understood the Lord would take care of it. He would develop him into the position which he was later to occupy. But right now was not the time. And so he wasn't going to wear the king's armor because he's not the king. He still sees that Saul is the Lord's anointed and he stands back. But we find that Goliath, of course, he goes out with a sword and a spear and a shield. And we find David, he picks up five stones, a sling and a script or a shepherd's bag. He goes out there in the name of the God of the armies of Israel. He goes out there, and of course, that Philistine giant Goliath, he begins to make fun of him. And uh, he asks, am I just a dog? Are y'all mocking me? Is this the best that Israel can come up with? Is this the best you can do? A young boy that doesn't even come out with a sword. And David comes out saying, you had defied the God of Israel. And you're going to stand before the armies of the God of Israel this day. And David goes on to tell him exactly what's going to happen to him. He tells him that that day, David would cut off his head with his own sword. David takes out one of those stones, puts it in the sling, aims, and he fires, hits him in the forehead. That man drops down, and we find that David climbs up on his chest, takes his own sword, and cuts off his head. And, of course, he goes back to town along with King Saul. What happens? We find the women back in Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, back in the capital Hebron. They begin to sing and praise that David, uh, excuse me, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. 
I've heard a lot of people criticize preachers for preacher jealousy. And I grant you there's been a lot of it. But a lot of it's come because people out in the pews have instigated some of that jealousy by saying, well, that preacher did a better job and began to build one up over another. And, of course, they're natural men and they hear those things and they begin to believe those things. And, of course, then the envy and the jealousy ensues. Now, they shouldn't do it, but we shouldn't build one up against another. Here those women were the start of the cause. Saul should have been a humble man, but he wasn't. He heard the song, well, Saul slain his thousands. Well, that sounds pretty good. Uh, But wait a minute, but David his ten thousands. Well, actually, David just killed one. But that one was a great giant against the advancement of the people of God. And so David was sung to in a greater way than Saul. And, of course, from that moment, Saul became jealous of David and began to seek his life. We'll find that uh, he uses several... Uh, angles to try to kill David. He'll try to use his son's friendship with him. He'll also later try to give his daughter to him in marriage, which he does. But we also find that uh, Saul, the reason that he gives him his daughter is because first he's going to give him a challenge. You've got to go out and slay 200 Philistines and bring me their foreskins before you can have my... He's hoping that David in that battle would be put to death. But David, of course, has the Lord with him. David is victorious. He kills 200 Philistines and brings uh, the trophies to Saul. And so again, Saul tries to seek his life. Ultimately, David has to leave the kingdom, actually goes in the land of the Philistines and fights for and with the Philistines, often coming into the land of Israel. But here's one thing David never would do. He never would fight against his countrymen. He would go out with his armies and take the goods of another people and bring it in. He brought what he was supposed to, the spoils of war, but he never would bring it from his own people. The day comes when the Philistines are gathered mightily against the people of Israel. And, of course, David's in a quandary. He's not going to fight against his own people. He's still honorable. He won't fight against his own nation. But we'll find that some of the captains of the Philistines don't trust David. They're afraid that uh, if they go out to battle, David will turn on them in the middle of the battle. And instead of fighting for the Philistines, they'll start to fight against the Philistines. They were wise because David very well may have done so. We'll find that this is the battle where ultimately Saul will die in battle. At this time, though, we find that, of course, God has departed from Saul. Samuel is now dead. And so Saul can't go to Samuel. And God even prays, but he hears nothing from the Lord about whether they would win the battle. You know, many times in the Old Testament, before the Israelites would go out to battle, their captain would go to the Lord. And the Lord would tell them ahead of time that they had the battle. In other words, the Lord was going to fight the battle for them, and they had the victory even before they went out. We find that Moses, from time to time, the Lord would tell him in advance that they had the victory before they even went out to to, uh, battle with whoever their enemy was. We find that Joshua, uh, many times the Lord would tell him. I find in Joshua chapter 5 that Joshua comes out against the captain of the host of the Lord and asks the question, Art thou for us or for our adversary? And of course that was the Lord who was there before him. And of course the Lord lets him know that he was for him. We'll find other times the Lord was not with the children of Israel. We find there was a man by the name of Achan uh, who had done wickedly in the camp of the people of God. And the uh, people of God didn't know it. And they go out to battle because that one man had done wrong in the sight of the Lord. The Lord was not with them in the battle. And they lost that day. And many Israelites were slain because of Achan's sin. Achan means trouble. And that's exactly what he was. So here we find that many times kings, before they went to battle, they would seek from the Lord whether or not the Lord was going to be with them. However, Samuel's not around, and so he can't go to the prophet and ask the prophet because the prophet's dead. He asks the Lord, and the Lord is against uh, Saul by this time, and so Saul doesn't answer. Or excuse me, God doesn't answer. 
So he goes to a witch from Endor and he begins to talk to her. Well, earlier in Saul's life, he had made a ruling or a law against going to witches and using witchcraft. So he disguises himself and goes to her and she knows who he is. And so he lets her know it'll be okay. Nothing will be done against you. And she brings, of course, Samuel back from the dead. It's interesting, while Samuel was alive, Saul wouldn't listen to him. Now Samuel's dead, and he asked a witch to bring him back to life so that he could talk to him. Amazing how often I've heard people say, I wish I had listened to the counsel of my mother and daddy while they were alive. They had wisdom that I wouldn't listen to when they were alive. I wish they were still around to tell me. I tell you, people, it would be much better off if we'd listened to the wisdom while it's here. I don't wait till they're gone. Here Saul didn't want to listen to Samuel uh, while he was alive, but now he needs an answer quick, so he... Uh, calls for Samuel to come back from the dead and Samuel lets him know that you and your sons will be with me by the end of this battle and that's exactly what takes place Saul is wounded in battle and to keep from being captured and tortured he asked his servant to kill him the servant will not come against the Lord's anointed but instead Saul falls upon his own sword David gets the word and David is so angered that the anointed of the Lord has been killed before he gets all the message he's ready to kill the man the servant that did not kill Saul Because he still respects the Lord's anointed. So now David is king. However, we'll find that he doesn't control all the kingdom. The northern portion of the kingdom is not under his control. But the time will come that he moves the capital to Jerusalem, which is right in the center of the nations or more center of the nation, north and south. He's trying to strategically locate it uh, so that he can bring the nations together. And we'll find that uh, David is ruling right and just in his portion of the nation. And the Israelites in the other, they see how good he's doing. And they want rid of their king and have uh, David rule over the entire kingdom. And the Lord blesses that. And David does. But then we find 1 Samuel chapter 11 occurs. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, even the Lord, excuse me, 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 11. Even though the Lord has blessed David abundantly. David has been honorable for the Lord. He's done what was right in his sight. He's been a man after his own heart. The day comes in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that David is in the wrong place at the wrong time. A lot of our troubles come as children of God because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sometimes it's never the right time to be in the wrong place. But in David's case, he was back at the capital when it was the time for kings to be out at war. David should have been out leading his troops in battle, but instead he stayed back home and sent the captain of his host to go out in his place. And so David was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and David will find himself in a lot of trouble because he wasn't out where he was supposed to be. Children of God oughtn't go certain places. There are certain places in this world that a child of God, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, never ought to go. There are bars and other places of ill repute in our land that we should never even darken the doors of. That's never the right time to be at certain places. And we would avoid a lot of trouble if we'd avoid them. Sunday morning, the right place to be at the right time is the Lord's house. Too many times we find the Lord's people in trouble because they're not in the Lord's house on the Lord's day at the right time. Instead, they're out doing other things and find themselves in trouble. They're not here hearing the counsel of the Lord's word. Instead, they're hearing the counsel of the wicked out in the uh, wicked's world. And then they wonder when great trouble comes in their lives. The right place for the people of God to be is the Lord's house at the right time, the Lord's day. Here, David wasn't at the right place at the right time. He is at the wrong place at the wrong time. What's he do? He's there on the palace roof, and he sees a woman bathing whose name is Bathsheba. He sees her, and he wants her. 
And since he's the king, he gets her. She's brought to him. She's a married woman. She's got a husband whose name is Uriah. And Uriah is where he's supposed to be at the right time in the right place. Uriah's out fighting where David ought to be. But Uriah's out trusting that everything's okay at home. And while he's fighting for this very king, this king is fighting against him. It's a tragedy when a ruler of a nation is against those who's fighting for that very king. Here David is fighting against Uriah in an ungodly way. Uriah is fighting it for the armies of the Lord. And instead of David being out there with them, he's desiring this man's wife and wants her and gets her. And of course, then she's with child. Well, she sends word to David that she's uh, pregnant. She's expecting a child. And of course, David now is caught. And David's got to do something to fix this situation. And so what David does, he calls for Uriah. Uriah comes home from battle. Uriah comes before the king. And it's under the guise for Uriah to give the king a report of how things are going out on the battlefield. But David's real purpose is to send that man home so that that man will cover up David's sin. Hopefully he'll go to his wife and then everybody will just assume that that child actually belongs to Uriah. But Uriah will not go. Uriah instead sleeps outside at the door of the king's palace. All night long there he sleeps. And the next morning the, uh, the servants of David recognize he's there and they tell David about it. Of course David's upset because uh, he's not covering up his sin. And so Uriah comes in and David begins to ask him about it. And Uriah says he would not go home to his wife, the comforts of home, while the ark and the army of the Lord were dwelling in tents. Here you had the ark of the covenant out in the battlefield in a tent and the people of God, the army of God out in tents. He said, I will not go home to the comfort of my wife. Uriah condemned David and Uriah didn't even know it. Here David was back at the comforts of home while the ark and the army were dwelling in tents. And here Uriah says, I'll not do that. I'll not be guilty of what you're guilty of. Although I don't believe he was accusing the king. But by his words and by what David was doing, David was accused. So David gives him a feast and gives him a lot of wine. In hopes that by being drunk, he'll not use that same judgment and David can send him home. He doesn't go home even under the influence of alcohol. This man is honorable before the Lord. And even though he's drunk by the king's wine to trick him, this man will not do that which is wrong in the sight of the king or the sight of the Lord. And once again, he'll not go home. So David is left in a greater problem. Uh, so what's he do? He writes a letter to the captain of the host. And the letter tells the captain of the host that in the hottest part of the battle, put your eye on the front line. And when it gets to the hottest part... Have all the army of Israel back up. What a tragedy. A man fighting with comrades. And the comrades turn against him. And here they back up and he's left alone. Uriah carries his own death certificate and he doesn't know it. His own death sentence has been written. It's a sealed letter. He's an honorable man. He doesn't open the message to the captain of the host. He takes it. The captain of the host reads it. And he honors what the king tells him. So they're in battle. Here Uriah's put right out at the forefront. David's orders are followed. The army's given a signal. They back up. And there's Uriah left all by himself in the front of the line. And he's killed. Now David thought he had the sin covered up. Because then he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. But there's a problem. There's one person who knows about it. And his name is the Lord our God. We can fool some of the people some of the time, and maybe some of the people all the time, but you'll never fool the Lord any of the time. 
The Bible is clear that all things are naked and open before him with whom we have to do. We ought to always remember that God sees everything we say. Everything, uh, here's all we say. He sees the things we do. He knows the thoughts we think. And here's the scarier part. He even knows them before we think them, do them, or say them. God already knows all about it. Psalm 139 lets us know that he knows our inward parts and our thoughts are far off. No matter what we do or think, God already knows about it before we do so. And so David thinks that he has committed the perfect crime. Nobody knows about it. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, a man by the name of Nathan, a prophet of God, comes and gives him a parable. And of course, the parable is about this poor man that has one little ewe lamb that was like a member of the family. They petted it. They loved it. And there was a wealthy man that had all that he could ever ask for. And he has a visitor come. And instead of taking of his own flock to feed his visitor, he goes and kills that one man's little ewe lamb and dresses it for his guest. And of course, David hears this story and David is enraged and makes a pronouncement that that man should be put to death. But before he's put to death, he's to restore fourfold that man whom he injured. And of course, Nathan spoke those great words we all know. He says, thou art the man. He spoke in a parable, but as soon as he said, thou art the man, David knew his sin was open. And we'll find that Nathan will speak a three-part judgment against David. First will be that the sword would not depart from his house. And from that day forward, David would have turmoil in his kingdom because of his own children. The second part of that was that neighbors would lie with his own wives out in the open. But they said it would be done before the sun. Because he said, the thing you've done secretly shall be done openly to you. The third part was that the child of that sin would be slain by the Lord. And sure enough, a few days later, seven days later, that child dies. And it's no time before there's great trouble in the house of King David. Now, God had already promised David that he would establish his throne. And one of his seed would sit upon his throne from that generation forever. And we'll find that, of course, that took place up until the days that Babylon came in and ransacked the uh, city of Jerusalem and all the land of Judea and took captives back home. But see, God had a more important person in mind who would sit upon that throne than David's children uh, through Bathsheba and otherwise Solomon and so forth. Because he really had in mind the Lord Jesus Christ who would sit upon that throne, which he does this present hour. Here we have the Lord sitting at the right hand of God making intercession daily for you and I. And that's the man that God had in mind when he told David that one of his own seed would sit forever from that generation forever upon his throne. But David said as long as he did that which was right in his sight, as long as his children did that which was right in his sight, that one of his own heirs would sit upon a throne. That the Davidic uh, uh, monarchy and dynasty would be established. But the problem is David failed. David sinned. He fell short. We'll find very quickly that his son Amnon desires his half-sister Tamar. And feigns sickness and asks of his father that Tamar could come and minister to him while he's sick. And so his father, being a good man, sends his daughter to take care of his son. And his son assaults her. And then will not honor her. But instead sees her as defiled and wants her out of his sight. Absalom, David's other son, one of his other sons, despised Amnon for what he had done. 
And here's the real tragedy of the whole thing. David knew what Amnon did, and David did nothing. David knew what had been done to Tamar, and it grieved him, the Bible says, but he stepped back and didn't do the right thing. This man who stood forward and took a, a lamb and a sheep out of the mouth of a lion and a bear, this man who stood forward and lived honorably before Saul and would not take the crown until God had removed it from Saul, uh, would not stand forward in this event. This man who was willing to stand forward against Goliath won't even stand forward against his own son who has molested his own daughter. A great tragedy and a great sin of David that he would not defend his own daughter and take care of this son which had done such a wicked thing and instead his son Absalom does it for him we'll find the day comes after a couple of years that Absalom has a huge feast and he asks if Amnon can come and David sends him of course David has his suspicion still that Absalom wants to put him to death and that's exactly what takes place Absalom slays his brother and then Absalom flees the country fearing his father's wrath but the time comes that the wise woman of Tekoa comes and speaks a parable to David and softens David's heart to let Absalom come back to the kingdom. And so Absalom comes. By this time, Absalom, he's a very good looking man. The Bible says that he had beautiful long hair. He had it pulled or cut once a year and it weighed 200 shekels. That's about between six and seven pounds and that would be sold. And he had a great impression upon the, among the people of the city of Jerusalem and all the land. In fact, we would find that he would sit at the gate of his father. And people would go into the king for judgment. And when they would come back out, Absalom would tell them, Well, if I were king and if I were judge, you'd have got a much better judgment. I'd have done better than my daddy did. And you'd be far happier with the results of the judgment. And so the Bible says that all the hearts of Israel were turned after Absalom because daily he stood there and he pronounced that I'd have done a, a much better job than my daddy. And so the day comes that he goes to his father and says, I made a vow to the Lord that if I were allowed to come back to Jerusalem, that I would go to Hebron and there I would pay my vow. And so David, under the uh, guise of this young son who he thinks is honorable, says, go. The Bible says that Absalom had spies in the land. And as soon as he went to Hebron, those spies began to cry aloud that there's a king established in Hebron. And so they began to flee. And David hears the word. And David leaves the capital for fear that Absalom is going to take his life to take the throne. Of course, the day comes when they go into battle. And in the battle, we find that Absalom is riding a mule. And as he goes under a tree, his hair is caught on the thicket of a branch and the mule kept going. There was an old Baptist preacher in Texas. Uh, he had a saying, the hanging of the hippie, and the mule walked on. That's what happened. Here this long-haired young man got his hair caught up in this tree, and the mule kept going. He was hanging there, and people saw him hanging, knew it was the king's son, and they came and thrust him through with darts. And, of course, the word is brought to David. There was a certain young man who wanted to take the message. And he was told no. And so another went. And finally this man just pressed and pressed. So he says, well, go. And he ran and overran the first messenger and came to David. And all he could say was a tumult, a tumult. And finally here comes the second man and bears the message. That the son of the king is just as those who were the enemies of the king. And of course David says those words. Oh Absalom, my son, my son, would to God I had died for thee. 
David, even though his son was against him, loved his son. We come back to our text. Although my house be not so with God. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. He's testifying of the covenant that God made before the world even began. And contained in that covenant, of course, is the doctrine of election. Where God chose every one of his children that would be with him at the last day. Another aspect of that covenant was the Lord Jesus Christ would come and fulfill the law to a jot and a tittle. Would pay for the sins of all the elect family of God. So that the elect family of God would likewise be the redeemed family of God. Another aspect of that covenant is that the Holy Ghost would then come upon every one of the redeemed elect family of God. So they become the regenerated redeemed elect family of God. And then at the last day, the Son of God will come and take the redeemed, regenerated, elect family of God home to be with the Lord forever and ever. That's the eternal covenant or the everlasting covenant that God made before the world began. And if it were not for that covenant, which the Lord made with himself and to himself, and we're the wonderful and blessed recipients and blessed of, if God had not made that covenant and David made the statement, although my house be not so with God, that's all that would need to be said because David and his household would have been forever banished to hell. But in spite of the fact that David's house was not so with the Lord or not in the way that it should have been, God had already made provisions for the very fact that David would fall. He made provisions for the fact that Adam would fall and that through Adam, every one of us would fall short of the glory of God. God made provision. God has been a God of providence long before he ever created this world. Thanks be to God for the providence of God. If he hadn't provided before the world ever began, as soon as Adam fell, we'd have been sent to hell forever. He again says, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. The Bible tells us that there are certain things that are sure. There's a certain seal the Lord has, and it's sure. That he knows all of his children. And he will have all of his children with him in glory without the loss of one. That is sure. That's certain. That's steadfast. That's something that can be banked upon even though our house is not so with God. I have to testify just as David did that my house is not so with the Lord. I've not lived as I ought to. Every one of you would have to testify that your house is not so with the Lord. But thanks be to God, he has an everlasting covenant. And it's ordered in all things even though our house isn't sure. It's still ordered in all things. And it's sure. He says, this is all my salvation. There's not any other. He had already fallen short. He couldn't save himself. He couldn't redeem himself. He didn't have that which was necessary to pay. So he says, this is all my salvation. He says, it's also all my desire. But then he closes, although he make it, what? His house not to grow. In other words, David is saying, I fell short. But in spite of me falling short, the Lord is keeping the covenant that he made. But the truth is, I will pay for the things that I have done in falling short with the Lord. He says, although my house be not so with God, he make it my house not to grow. He says, I've missed out and my children have missed out on many blessings that we would have experienced if we had conducted ourselves honorably before the Lord. If I had done that which was good and and seeming in his sight and well-pleasing before him, there's no telling the glory and the benefits that I and all the people of Israel and all his family would have experienced.
experience. There are many blessings that you and I would experience and do experience when we obey the Lord. And there's also many blessings we miss out on when we fail to obey the Lord, when we uh, disobey Him. I'm thankful, though, that in spite of all those things, the fact that we fall short, and although He doesn't add many of the blessings that perhaps He would have, in spite of all that, His everlasting covenant is ordered in all things. Even us falling short, And even in him not blessing us as he would here in this world. In spite of all that, his everlasting covenant, it's ordered in all things and it is sure. It's all our salvation. It should be all of our desire. Even though there's many things we miss out on because too often it's not all of our desire. Although our house be not so with God, thanks be to God he's made with us also an everlasting covenant that's ordered in all things and sure. It's all our salvation, all our desire, although we make it not to grow. May the Lord bless you as our prayer.